Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do we. We created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for almost a decade, and I've achieved a 99th percentile score on the GMAT and helped thousands of students get into the business school's of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since we all at TGS think our world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. If this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying so that together we can make this process as easy and as painless as it can possibly be. Let's go. Let's talk about the brand new data insights section of the brand new GMAT Focus Edition. This is something I've been getting a ton of questions about, and I want to break everything down that you need to know. Now, I debated about whether to turn this one episode into three episodes, one based on strategy, one based on integrated reasoning, which is one of the question types in DI, and one based on data sufficiency, which is the other question in DI. But I ultimately decided just to wrap it all into one episode, kind of like a mega episode. So there's going to be a lot of line items here. And I'm just going to rely on you for feedback to let me know if it would be helpful to have three episodes and go a little bit deeper on strategy and then a little bit deeper on integrated reasoning and a little bit deeper on data sufficiency. So what I've done for you here is just giving you the total package. This is everything you need to know and nothing you don't. But FYI, there's a lot coming your way here. Now, let me immediately address the elephant in the room and hopefully decrease your stress level on data insights quite a bit by letting you know that, yes, it is a brand new section, but don't let that fool you because it's just a combination of two old GMAT classic problem types with one relatively minor change, and that's it. So let's say you've studied for the old version of the GMAT and you understand what integrated reasoning is. Integrated reasoning is comically the same as it was on the old test. In fact, there's still pretty much the same number of integrated reasoning questions. They've just lengthened the section a little bit and added some data sufficiency in there. They took data sufficiency out of the quant section and just put it into data insights. So if you've been stressed thinking like, oh, there's this new thing for me to master and learn, don't worry about that. I promise you it's going to be very familiar. The first data insights section you take, you're going to be like, oh, it's just, it's just this. And if you're just starting out, there's no need to fear that the data insights section is quote unquote new. Yes, technically it is new, but it is only new in the sense that it combines two problem types that have been around for a very, very long time. So let's dive in. There's two question types in data insights. The first, like I mentioned, is integrated reasoning. The second is data sufficiency. There is no change to integrated reasoning in the new section. And I'll dive deep on everything you need to know about that in a moment. There is one change to data sufficiency questions, which is that about half of them have to do with mathematics, which has always been the case. And the other half are now basically pure logic questions where there's very little or zero computation to do. And it's more like a real world scenario usually, such as three friends go out for ice cream, friend A gets chocolate and strawberry, friend B gets neither chocolate nor strawberry, and friend C gets chocolate only if the other two people got three chocolate each or like something like that. Where like there are technically numbers in the question, but I don't need to set up an equation to answer the problem. 
And all you need for those questions is the same data sufficiency process that you've always had. And like I've spoken about in the past few weeks, the only real change to this is that your scratch work habits are just more important than they used to be. <laughs> because instead of missing a negative sign or something like that, like you might have on a classic data sufficiency question, you might miss one of the constraints of the problem. Like, oh, this person, this third person only gets vanilla if the other two people both get chocolate. But if only one of the other friends gets chocolate, then the third person gets strawberry and no vanilla. And so you just want to find a way to track that unless you're one of these very, very, very rare people who can track that kind of thing in your head, okay? So that's the only difference is you'll see some data sufficiency questions that are like pure logic questions. And then you'll see old familiar data sufficiency questions that have numbers in them, exponent rules, standard similar content to what you would see in the quantitative section. So I'll dive deep on some strategy for IR and data sufficiency in a moment. And if you're feeling like, wow, that actually does sound kind of new, Isaac, I'm a little scared of that. Don't stress, I've got you covered. But what I want to do before we dive into those nitty gritty details is just talk about some quick basics of the section, okay? So what is the DI section? It's 20 questions in 45 minutes. So far, I've seen about 12 to 15 integrated reasoning questions on any given section. The old integrated reasoning section on GMAT Classic was 12 questions every single time. So there's a little bit more variance here. You might see a little bit more IR on some days and a little bit less on other days, which leaves room for about five to eight data sufficiency questions. This is what I've observed so far. We're going to collect a lot more data as the exam matures, but there hasn't been enough variance that I have any reason to question these numbers. It's not a guarantee that you're going to see that on test day, but that's a very reasonable expectation. So what that means is integrated reasoning is about twice as important as data sufficiency. Now, if you want a top score, you definitely need to be great at both, and I'll walk you through that in a moment as promised. Uh, but let me just give you a few really important strategic pointers before we dive deeper. First question, what should be my goal on the DI section if I want to go to a top school? For most top schools, a 78 out of 90 or better is going to be acceptable. Below that, there's still a chance, but you should probably work on it. Like if you're getting 75, 76s on your DI practice tests, that should be a focus area until you can get to 78 or higher. If you're applying, let's call it top 20. If you're applying outside of the top 20, I think 76 or higher is probably fine. If you're applying outside of the top 50, probably 73 or higher is fine. So hopefully that gives you a good target score. Now, once you reach that 78 level, you're just looking for the section that you can stack the most points on the fastest. So if you're really great at quant, and you feel like there's a lot of opportunity in the quant section and you're hitting 78 in DI and it's been a huge struggle to get to 78 in DI, you might want to invest 90% of your effort in moving the quant score because that's going to be the thing that drives the overall three-digit score, which is what a lot of us want to see. I've talked about this a lot in the past couple of weeks, but I'll just briefly mention it again. You're looking for a 78 or better in quant, 80 or better in verbal, 78 or better in DI for top schools and then outside of the top 20, you can have a little bit more flexibility there. And then after you reach those minimums, one to two subscore points on each individual section will probably move your overall three-digit score by about 10 points. So going from 78 to 80 in quant might be enough to push me from 635 to 645 on the overall score, or 645 to 655. If you're in the middle of the bell curve, like 500-ish area in your overall three-digit score, 555 or 515, then usually one point on the subscore is going to bump you up 10 points on the overall. If you're a little higher or a little bit lower, 
like you're in the 400s or you're above 600, you might need one and a half to two subscore points to move your overall three-digit score. That's your goal in DI. What are the most important strategic pointers? Well, number one is the data insights section is adaptive. And that's really, really important. And I guess actually that is a bit of a departure from the old exam. So on the old exam, integrated reasoning was not adaptive, but now it is. So what that means is it works exactly the same way as quant and verbal. There was actually, unfortunately, a typo in the 2023 official guide that says it's not adaptive, and that has been corrected by GMAC, the people who write the GMAT, okay? So it's definitely adaptive. All sections on the GMAT are question adaptive now. And if you want more information about what that means and how to strategize on an adaptive exam, it's not really great to talk about it via podcast. So just head to our website. There's a completely free video. It's 40 minutes long. I'll teach you all about how to handle the algorithm and how to develop your own strategy for that if you're interested. It's at our website, thegmatstrategy.com, which is linked in the description of this podcast. So that's key number one. Key number two is there is a calculator. You can show and hide it with a button, usually on the upper left portion of the test screen. So you click on the little calculator icon and it'll show the calculator on the screen. And you can click on the icon again and hide the calculator. I recommend that you have it shown the whole section so that you don't forget to use it when it's valuable or when it's needed. Because most of us are conditioning ourselves super heavily on the quant section to not need a calculator, which makes sense because there's no calculator on the quant section. And so we tend to forget that there's a calculator on DI. Now, this can be a little bit annoying. Sometimes the calculator will cover up a question if you keep it shown the entire section. So then for sure, hide it or move it around so that you can see the whole question and answer it accurately. But I recommend bringing it back as soon as possible because again, it's easy to forget it. And the calculator is not as useful as we might want it to be, but when it's useful, it's super, super, super useful. And so my advice to you, which goes against a lot of people's advice out there, is to use the calculator as often as possible. It cuts down on computation errors, and it also decreases the brain drain across the entire exam, which is a significant factor to consider for many of us because most of our brains didn't evolve to sit in front of a computer for four hours or three hours or two and a half hours, depending on your time accommodations. So the calculator is very important, it's very valuable. Uh, but what I will say about it is many questions that are very computationally intensive are gonna be better to just estimate in integrated reasoning questions in particular. This is also true of some data sufficiency. So here's a good barometer. If you're about to do more than 90 seconds of calculations on the calculator, you should probably just estimate the problem instead. If it's a quick 30 seconds or 10 seconds or 20 seconds of computations on the calculator, then for sure, just use the calculator. It'll decrease the strain on your brain and it'll help you have a better performance across the entire section. So let's get into integrated reasoning and data sufficiency and make sure you're prepared. So just to rehash these strategic points before I move on, I talked about the number of IR and the number of DS you're gonna see. I talked about how the data insights section is adaptive. And I talked about how there's a calculator and you want to use it as often as possible. So let's dive into integrated reasoning. This used to be its own section. And what GMAC was doing was piloting the section for many years. We all suspected that it would become a lot more important. And you can even hear me predict that five years ago on our original IR episode from 2019 in the audio feed if you want to. 
And lo and behold, it has now become very, very important. So why does this matter? Integrated reasoning used to be a separate score, and it didn't affect your overall three-digit score. But now, as I just spoke about, that's not the case. So integrated reasoning has become just as important as quant and verbal. And that's because data literacy is really, really important these days. That's why business schools wanted the section introduced to the exam. I can't remember exactly how many years ago it is at this point, but I think like seven years ago or something like that, give or take. And that's why it's become more important as we probably would all agree, data literacy has just become more and more and more important as a business person. So hence the integrated reasoning problem type becoming more important. So what is integrated reasoning? Well, let's start with the word integrated. That means it's going to combine quant and verbal concepts. Now that might sound a little scary, but it's actually good news because what it means is all the studying you've done for quant and verbal will help out your integrated reasoning score. And that's why a lot of providers are going to recommend that you start with your quant and verbal studies first, be all in on those, and then transition to integrated reasoning and data insights later, because a lot of times increasing your quant knowledge, increasing your quant skills, increasing your verbal knowledge, increasing your verbal skills will drive the DI score. So I personally think that that is good advice. And that's the approach I've been taking with most folks, unless they're just coming in to our work together, super strong with quant and verbal and just really, really having a hard time with DI. Then we'll jump straight into the DI section. So again, more good news. There's no new content. So there might be some things you'll see in the quant section that you wouldn't see on an IR question, but there's not going to be anything brand new. But integrated reasoning is unique in that there are four new question formats. So there isn't any new content tested, but the format of the question that tests the same content is different from quantitative and verbal. So that's going to be the main adjustment that most people are going to need to make when it comes to being great at DI. Here's the thing. Once you master those four question formats, I'm going to help you do that in a second, and you master the content from quant and verbal, you've mastered integrated reasoning. That's it. And the only thing that could hold you back is timing, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a sec. But first, let's get into these, these four new types. The first type is called two-part analysis. These are basically just algebra problems where you solve for two variables, hence the name. Usually, they're word problems of some type. It could be statistics, like mean, median, mode, range, or it could be something very similar to a critical reasoning question in the verbal section. So there's there's a wide range of topics, hence integrated reasoning, rather than just quantitative or verbal reasoning. There's really one core strategy on two-part analysis questions, and it's, it's very, very simple. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's super powerful, not super powerful. In fact, because it's very simple, I think that makes it even more powerful. And the main strategy is just a structured approach to reading carefully. When I see people miss two-part analysis questions, it's usually not because they don't know the math or they don't know the strategy if it's more like a CR. It's usually because they missed a keyword somewhere or a key concept. So super simple structure for you here. Start by writing down what the question is asking you. You can just read the question top to bottom, but make the first thing that you write down, what am I being asked here? And just get crystal clear on that. Then go back and write down the information from the prompt that is related to answering that question. One of the key skills of IR that we're going to talk about a lot today is sifting through lots of information to find the key data. This is something that we don't need to do in the quant section. In the quant section, 
pretty much 100% of the time, if you're given something in a problem, it's crucial for solving the question. Like you need that data point to solve the question. IR is pretty much the opposite of that. There's tons of extraneous information that you don't need. And so the core skill is finding the data I do need. This is part of the reason that writing down the question first is so valuable because it will help you identify out of all the information you're given, what is the key information that is likely to drive my results on this question? So that's going to keep you efficient. That's pretty much it for two-part analysis because, again, it's all content that you're going to be familiar with from quant and verbal if you've prepared well. And so it's really just getting used to that strategic move I was just sharing with you. Now, one note on two-part analysis questions is that you should be prepared to guess and test with the answer choices. And that's because they're giving you two variables and they'll sometimes ask a question like, which of the following could be values of X and values of Y. And the issue that a lot of quant folks run into there is there isn't one equation that I can just solve and get the exact value of X and the exact value of Y. And that can be frustrating sometimes. And so you just want to mentally and emotionally prepare for that and make sure that you've practiced some type of strategy with problem-solving questions or two-part analysis questions. I'll give you a good resource for those in a moment. And you've practiced a few, maybe even untimed, just plugging the answers in and guessing and testing with whatever equations or whatever problem solving you've done up to that point in the problem. It's just something that I find throws people off a little bit. It's not a core strategy like the reading thing I gave you, but it's, it's a helpful tip. So that's two-part analysis. The second type is called graphics interpretation. And if you've ever seen a graph before, you pretty much should be good to go on this question, but... There is one valuable strategic point that I'll give you here, which is you want to read the title and the axes of the graph very carefully. You want to read the title and the axes of the graph very carefully. In fact, I, re I recommend that you read those carefully before you even read the question. And I also recommend making note on your scratch pad if there are like weird units on either of the axes, such as the x-axis is in millions or in hundreds of millions. Like the x-axis on the graph might just say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but then there's like a key to the graph that says x-axis is in hundreds of millions. And that could be the difference between <laughs> getting the exact answer and not. For example, if there's a data point on six on the x-axis and that, rex that represents 600 millions, then it's very easy to just pick 6 million or 60 million. And I know that might sound like a mistake you would never make right now, but under pressure... When you're fatigued, remarkably, remarkably easy to make those kinds of mistakes. And let's be honest, that's, that's one of the worst reasons to miss a question on an exam that's this important. So that's what I recommend on graphs questions. That's pretty much it. <laughs> they can take time. They can be time intensive. They can still be hard to figure out, but the basics are not complicated. Couple just smaller tips on graphs. Number one, you might see some weird graphs like bubble charts strange things like that, that might be a little bit unfamiliar. Try not to let that throw you off too much, but if you're staring at the graph and you really can't figure out what's going on, don't be afraid to just pick a random answer and move on. Remember, you can always come back and change your answer on up to three questions in every section on the GMAT now. I know I haven't touched much on that strategy, but I, I do have forthcoming episodes around that if you're curious about like how to use that feature because that is new and it can be quite helpful. But I still wanted to collect a little bit more data for all of you because 
that is a, a brand new feature and it it influences the way the algorithm works. And GMAC has been somewhat forthcoming about how the GMAT scoring algorithm works, but a lot of it is shrouded in mystery. And some of you might have come up against that in your studies so far. That was a huge problem for me back in the day. There was a ton of disinformation on the internet about the GMAT scoring algorithm when I was studying. And this is a huge reason why I've created TGS for all of you in the first place. Um, and again, why I created that video on our website, because it, it's just not that helpful to explain it via podcast uh, or via audio. So that's graphs. Um, the graphs questions, you're always going to see two drop-down menus. So it's kind of like a fill-in-the-blank with some drop-downs when you pick the answer, but it's not rocket science. All of you have seen drop-downs in your life before, and you're going to be very, very capable of figuring that part of the question out. Third type of integrated reasoning question is called table analysis. These are basically just spreadsheets. That should be pretty darn familiar for most of you. If you've never seen a spreadsheet before, you're going to love business school because there's a, there's a boatload of them, okay? Now, the important point about table analysis here is you won't be able to manipulate the data in as intricate a way as you can with many spreadsheet softwares on the market, okay? But you can sort the data based on each column. So it's a very rudimentary way you can interact with the data, but it is helpful. It's a lot more helpful than just seeing a spreadsheet that you can't move the data around with at all. So I want to give you one strategic key for table analysis because IR questions, it's just not rocket science, everybody. Like they're straightforward in terms of the strategy you need. They're just tricky because there's so much information that you have to sift through and it can be a little bit overwhelming, okay? But again, that's why I said that's like the core skill. And all of these strategies I'm giving you are meant to help you cut through that noise, for lack of a better expression, and find the key data that's going to help drive good results on questions. So the key strategy with table analysis is very simple. You always want to sort the data based on what the question is asking you. So if in the data table there's a list of customers is, is one column, like customer A, B, C, D, E, then price points of most common products they buy is the next column, and then total revenue per customer is the next column, and then total profit per customer is the next column, et cetera. You just sort based on what the question is asking. So if the question is asking about Common price points, you sort based on common price points. If the question is asking about revenue per customer, you sort based on revenue per customer. If it's asking about profit per customer, you sort based on profit per customer. And so you can be very robotic with these questions. And I found that as simple, as simple as that strategy is, it really, really helps unlock table analysis for most people, even people who struggle a lot with those. That's it. That's it. Otherwise, it's pretty much everything I've already talked to you through, which is reading carefully. That's going to be huge on all IR questions. And you might have to read and reread if needed. And if you've read something three times and you still don't understand it, a good rule of thumb is that's a good time to just skip the question. And again, you can always come back to it later if you need to. Fourth and final type of integrated reasoning question is called multi-source reasoning. This is pretty much just reading comprehension from the verbal section with numbers. <laughs> so the format is quite similar. Instead of a passage on the left side of the screen, you will see uh, a, it kind of looks like a web browser with tabs open, and there's usually two or three tabs that you can click and view one at a time. So it's very similar to surfing the internet with tabs on a web browser. And that takes the place of what would be like the reading comp passage on the left side of the screen. And then on the right side of the screen, you're going to cycle through usually two or three questions on that data set. So that is somewhat unique, 
Multi-source reasoning, you'll have two or three questions on one data set. On pretty much all other IR types, it's just one question per data set. Now, if you've seen any IR questions, you'll know that individual questions generally have multiple parts, but I'm not talking about that right now. I'll talk about multiple parts of IR questions in a sec. I'm talking about straight up on multi-source reasoning, you will see two or three individual questions that may each have multiple parts. So that's very similar to reading comp. If you've done any study or prep with reading comp, you'll see the passage on the left side of the screen, and then you'll see three to four questions that you'll cycle through on that same passage. That's how multi-source reasoning works. So the information itself is, again, just like tabs on a web browser, so you can only view one tab at a time. So you're, you're basically clicking back and forth between these tabs, and you're answering questions based on how the data in individual tabs is related. And for many of you, this is going to be fairly similar to your day-to-day -day jobs. Like you got an email in one tab, and then you got a spreadsheet in another tab or window, and you're writing an email to your staff or you're compiling data for a report or something like that. So for a lot of you, multi-source reasoning will be very familiar. The main strategy here with multi-source reasoning is just to treat it exactly how you would treat reading comprehension. So if you haven't listened to our episode on GMAT Verbal, I, I go pretty deep on reading comprehension and some valuable strategic pointers there for you. So definitely listen to that if you're concerned about MSR, but I'll give you the super, super, super quick version of it. You'll do a quick scan of all the tabs and all the info they give you. You're going to make some light notes if that's helpful for you. And then you're just going to base, you're going to answer based on the evidence that they give you, not your opinion. So even if they ask you like to speculate, if it says like they use words like infer, imply, or suggest, it's it sounds like they're asking for your opinion, but they're not. They're just asking you for which one is 100% provable based on the data that we gave you. And if you focus on that, if you focus on what the evidence can prove, then you will get lots of multi-source reasoning questions correct. Now, time can be an issue just because there's a lot of info to process. So again, we'll jump into that in just a moment. So that's it. Th those are the four integrated reasoning question types. If you master those and you run the plays I just gave you, you implement the strategies I guess just gave you, you're going to be light years ahead of your competition on integrated reasoning. It really is that simple. And the rest is just quant and verbal content. So make sure that you're putting a great amount of energy into those two sections, unless you're already testing super, super high, in which case, thank the powers that be that, that you got that natural talent. Let me give you a couple strategic pointers for integrated reasoning, just as some final notes. Number one, you'll notice that most questions have multiple parts. I was talking about this a second ago. Two-part analysis perhaps obviously has two answers. Graphs have two drop-downs, like I talked about. And the, the important point here is there's no partial credit on those multi-part questions. So in a two-part analysis, if I get variable A right and variable B wrong, the whole question is wrong. On multi-source reasoning, you'll often see these yes or no questions, and there'll be three of them within one question. If you got two out of the three right, but the third one wrong, the whole question is wrong. Now, before you let that stress you out, it actually can be reframed as a good thing, because if you're a little bit unsure on a question, you should be more willing to give away those multi-part questions, because your odds of success and guessing correctly are lower than if there's a single-part question or just a two-part question, excuse me. So that can help you figure out what you should guess on and potentially come back to or what you should double down on in the moment on integrated reasoning. So 
final final kind of point on that now that we're wrapping up ir is there's no new problem types in the section it's all integrated reasoning as it's always been and it's all data sufficiency as it's basically always been we'll talk more about data sufficiency in a moment but for now what i want you to take away here is all the integrated reasoning material prep material that's out there on the internet from gmat classic the old version of the gmat is 1000 percent relevant to gmat focus so if you've been worried about, hey, there's not that many data insights problems out there, there's not that many data insights resources out there for me, which is true, there's not very many resources labeled data insights yet, but that'll change in the coming months. Right now, if you're studying, use integrated reasoning questions from GMAT Classic. Use integrated reasoning sections from past GMAT exams that you might have. Use GMAT Club to find old integrated reasoning questions or integrated reasoning questions that other people have written. If you're not sure what GMAT Club is, it's just gmatclub.com. It's a very useful resource for you. Many people have been asking me for DI-specific materials. There's plenty available on mba.com if you've got some budget, and there's plenty available on many old GMAT sites and GMAT books if you need more practice with that, all right? So try not to stress yourself out with the limited DI resources. Just recognize integrated reasoning is exactly the same as it's always been. So that's that's the first and second tip. Two part, uh, excuse me, many questions have multiple parts. That can lead you to guess on certain questions if you're unsure. So for example, if I got the first question right on a three-part question, but then I'm unsure about the second option, I'm going to very quickly guess on the third option as well because it's very unlikely I'm about to get that whole entire question correct. That's strategic point number one. Strategic point number two is all GMAT classic resources for IR and for data sufficiency are very helpful for the data insights section. So don't worry if you feel like there's not very many materials for you out there. Third, third parting thought for integrated reasoning. Many people feel a lot of time pressure in the data insights section, and this is usually because of integrated reasoning and the whole multi-part question thing I was just telling you about. So instead of 12 questions in 30 minutes, give or take, it feels more often like 30 questions in 30 minutes. Um, again, there's a lot of data to sift through. It can be a big challenge. Um, and so most timing issues in DI are going to be integrated reasoning related. If you need to improve IR and especially your timing, this is actually one question type that does respond well to a lot of repetition in my experience. So if you follow my content or if you've engaged with me, uh, a little bit, you probably understand my philosophy is fewer questions with a deeper review strategy. And that tends to drive results way, way faster than just the volume, do thousands of problems kind of classic approach to these standardized tests or just tests in general. But integrated reasoning is actually one where doing a lot of problems can be really, really helpful. So don't be afraid to do a lot of IR practice questions if you're struggling with timing or if you're struggling with IR accuracy. If you're naturally great with integrated reasoning, focus that energy on something else. That'll that'll really help accelerate your progress. But if you really need help with IR, then still review and still learn from each individual question, but it's totally okay to have a little bit more superficial review process for integrated reasoning and just do a lot of reps. Now, if you need more help on IR specifically or on the DI section, feel free to reach out to us and we'll be happy to advise. Uh, you can email us thegmatstrategy at gmail.com if you want, or you can DM us at the GMAT strategy on current social channels. So now you've got a core strategy for data insights overall, 
and you've got core strategies for each of the four individual integrated reasoning types, and you've got some extra secret sauce about how you can improve integrated reasoning if you need to. So let's round this out by talking about data sufficiency. And if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed at this point with all the info I've given you, you might want to pause the episode and come back at a later time because data insight, excuse me, data sufficiency is a very technical problem type. It's important to have a deep understanding of data sufficiency because it's such an unfamiliar format, especially when you compare it with something familiar like problem-solving questions from the quant section. Most of us have seen something like a five-option multiple-choice math question in our scholastic academic career, or many of us have taken many standardized tests that have questions like that. But it's extremely unlikely, in fact, almost a 0% chance that you've interacted with data sufficiency questions in the past they're unique to the GMAT and the, and the related exams, such as the executive assessment. Now, problem-solving questions, you just get an answer and you're done. <laughs> you solve for X, X is seven, seven is option B, I bubble B, and I move on to the next question. Again, that's very, very familiar. But data sufficiency is not that simple. It's more like a logic question that uses math content to test logical reasoning skills. So if you don't like the sound of that, you're not alone. If you do like the sound of that and you like puzzles and logical puzzles, then count your lucky stars. That's awesome. You're probably going to be great at data sufficiency a lot faster than most people are. Some people struggle heavily with data sufficiency. Some don't. If you have been struggling with data sufficiency, then I've got some killer info for you here. But again, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed right now with all the info I've given you in this episode, just pause and potentially come back to this a little bit later. With that being said, here we go with data sufficiency. So the format, there's always a question at the top of the screen on data sufficiency problems. That's the first thing you'll always see is a question at the top, and that'll be followed by two facts underneath that question, fact one and fact two. Let's start at the top with the question. Sometimes it's just a straight up question. What is the value of X? Or how long does it take Andre to complete a task by himself? Sometimes it's just a question. Other times they might give you some information along with the question, such as X is a positive integer or Y plus Z equals 42. And then they ask you the question, what is the value of X or what is the value of Z? So that part, most people can wrap their minds around relatively easily. Below the questions, like I said, there's always going to be two facts. These are called statements. That's what the exam calls them. But it's good to think about them as facts because they're always telling you the truth. You never have to question statement one or statement two or what I'm going to call fact one or fact two. They're always telling you the truth. So if fact one says X is equal to seven, you don't have to worry like, wait, what if it's equal to eight? Like you just don't have to think about that at all. If the fact tells you X is seven, then X is seven. Same with some of the given information in the problem. If the problem starts with, x is equal to 7, what's the value of y, then you know x is 7, and you don't have to question that. Your job, in terms of what you do with those facts, is pretty different than a problem-solving question. On data sufficiency, we're not just trying to get a numerical answer most of the time. Instead, we're trying to answer a more subtle question, which is how much data do I need to theoretically answer this question definitively? Let me repeat that. On data sufficiency, I'm asking the question, how much data do I need theoretically to answer this question definitively? And I've chosen those words very carefully, and I'll break that down for you in a second, okay? But the key here 
is we're just asking how much data would I need to answer the question, not what is the answer to the question. So it's a little bit different than a problem-solving question, which is just, what's the value of x? It's a little more straightforward. Data sufficiency doesn't always require that you have a numerical answer. It just requires that you theoretically could get that numerical answer based on the data that you're given. And that's why the question type is called data sufficiency. What data is sufficient to answer the question and what data is not? Now, the good news with data sufficiency is once you get a couple repetitions under your belt, you'll realize you're going to ask very similar questions every single data sufficiency problem. You're going to look at fact one, and you're going to ask, is this thing by itself enough to answer the question? And then you're going to end up looking at fact two. Is this thing by itself enough to answer the question? Or do I need both facts in order to answer the question? And you'll notice that those questions correspond with the five answer options on data sufficiency, which never change. So answer choice A on a data sufficiency question will always say statement one by itself is sufficient to answer the question, but statement two is not. I'll repeat that. Option A always says statement one by itself is enough data to answer the question, but statement two is not. So if you're looking at one and that gives you enough data to answer the question above it, and you're looking at two and you're like, yeah, two by itself is not enough, then you would pick A on that question, all right? Let me walk you through the other answer choices. Option B always says, Statement two alone is enough to answer the question, but statement one is not. So if I'm looking at statement one, and I'm like, yeah, this isn't enough data for me to answer this problem, but I look at two, and you're like, oh, that's definitely enough, then you pick B. Now, sometimes one by itself won't be enough to answer the question, and two by itself won't be enough to answer the question. And that's when you will look at option C. Option C says statement one and two independently are not enough, but together they are enough to answer the question. So if one and two are not enough individually, then you can combine them. And if you combine them and you get the answer, then that would be option C. Option E, as in echo, I'm skipping over D, delta for a second. Option E, as in echo, is what you pick when you put the statements together and it's still not enough data to answer the question, right? So if I put one and two together, I have the maximum data possible and I still can't get a definitive answer to the question above the two facts, then that's option E. Option D, as in delta, is when one by itself is enough and two by itself is enough. So if one by itself is enough, gives me enough data to answer the question and independent of that, statement two also gives me enough information to answer the question, I pick option D as in delta. So those are your five options on data sufficiency. You're gonna wanna memorize those as soon as possible. So as soon as you've got some flashcards in front of you or as soon as you're out of the car or out of the gym or, or wherever you are right now, you're gonna wanna list out the data sufficiency answer options, and test yourself on those every single day until you just cannot forget what each individual one represents. And again, A is always one, B is always two, they never change. So it's, it should be a pretty straightforward process to memorize those, all right? So that's point one, really important point about data sufficiency format. Point two, a lot of people get confused because the goal of data sufficiency is not just to get any answer. It's not just, oh, does fact one give me some numerical value for X? So let's say the question is, what's the value of X? And statement one tells you X is larger than six. You might be tempted to think, well, it's six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Like I have an answer for the value of X. Seems like it's sufficient, but that's not true. That's not true. What data sufficiency questions are asking you is, do I always get the same answer? That's why I use the word definitively so forcefully when I define what your job is 
on a data sufficiency question. Can I answer this question definitively? Meaning, do I always get the same answer? There's only one answer. So if I return to our example problem and the question is, what's the value of X? And statement one says X is equal to seven. That's definitive. <laughs> X is always equal to seven. Again, the facts are always telling me the truth. And so that's gonna be enough data to answer that question. That would be sufficient data. If you have questions about this or you're getting a little bit lost, that's totally normal. You can try YouTube if you want uh, to kind of hit the brain centers a little bit differently with data sufficiency, or you can reach out to us and we can help you pick the right resource for you. Now there's two types of data sufficiency questions. The first is what I was just talking about. It's called a value question. What's the value of X? And that's asking you for a numerical value. Again, what would be sufficient data on a value question is one singular value. If sometimes X could be six and other times X could be seven, that's not sufficient. It needs to always be six. That's it. That's the only thing that's going to be sufficient on a value problem, okay? Usually these have the word value in them, such as what's the value of Y or what's the value of P, like all the examples I gave. Every once in a while, it might not have the word value in it, such as how many minutes does it take Isaac to complete a certain task? That's still asking you for a numerical value, but it doesn't have the word value in it, okay? Now, again, if in some situations, Isaac takes 30 minutes, and in other situations, he could take 35, that's not going to be sufficient data to answer that question, okay? So one value, one value. That's very different from the other type of data sufficiency, which is called yes or no data sufficiency. So this would be like a question, is X equal to five? That's a little different than the question, what's the value of X? The question, is X equal to five, is a yes or no question. And there's only three answers to it. There's yes, no, and maybe. Meaning sometimes it's five and other times it's not five. So let's explore that. Again, your job on data sufficiency is to pick a definitive answer. And so that means on a yes, no question, I either always have to get yes or always have to get no. Let me give you an example of that. So let's take the question, does X equal five? And then statement one says X equals five. Okay, well, that's definitive. It's a definite yes. It's yes, 100% of the time, that's sufficient data. If the question is, is X equal to five? And then statement one says, X is equal to five or seven, that is not sufficient data. Sometimes it's five, could be seven though, not sufficient. Now, what can really bake people's noodles here, what can really be a brain melter is when you get no. So an example of that would be, is X equal to five is the question. And then the statement says X is equal to seven. That actually is sufficient data to answer that question because you know for sure the answer to the question, is X equal to five is no, it's not five. It's never five, it's seven. That can really, really melt the brain cells. So don't worry if you make that mistake a few times on some practice questions. With a little bit of practice, all of this stuff is going to be second nature at some point. It might be fast, it might be slow, but you will get there as long as you don't give up. All right, so that's the difference between yes-no and value questions. The final point to make about yes-no questions is the maybe point. I guess I already touched on this, but if I... If I'm asked, is X equal to five? And statement one says X is larger than four. 
that's not going to be sufficient data to answer the question because it could be four, five, six, seven. Sometimes it's five, sometimes it's not. Again, brain melter here. If the question is, is X equal to five? And statement one says X is larger than six, that is going to be sufficient data because you know for sure it is not equal to five. It's a definitive answer. There is one answer to the question, is X equal to five? The answer is no. All right. So that's value versus yes, no. That can really mess with people. If you're struggling with that, just write value at the beginning of a value DS question or yes, no at the beginning of a yes, no data sufficiency question. If you find yourself getting those mixed up, because that's very, very common. Now, what you'll find with data sufficiency is more than any other problem type on the GMAT, it rewards a consistent process. So let's build that for you. I'm going to keep this simple. Step one on a data sufficiency question is the most important step, which is write what's given and asked. You should be physically writing down the given information and the question on your scratch pad 100% of the time on data sufficiency questions, unless you are in that 0.01% of people who can just do amazingly well and get 100% of data sufficiency questions right just doing them in your head, okay? I know the temptation to do data sufficiency in your head is massive, and the test writers know that, and they will try to trick you with that. Keep in mind, the whole premise of a data sufficiency question is to make data that is sufficient seem like it isn't and make data that isn't sufficient seem like it is. Otherwise, all data sufficiency questions would be super easy. All right, so writing things down will really help with this. When there's a constraint given, such as X cannot be equal to zero, that constraint is always given for a reason. So you really want to note that. Now, if there's no constraint given on X, then you want to mentally note that or physically note that as well. X could be negative. It could be a fraction. It could be positive. It could be a decimal. That's really important. If X is constrained, that's really important. If X is not constrained in a day's efficiency, that's really, really important, okay? Now, the other reason I recommend writing what's given and asked is it will trigger you to do the rest of the structured approach I'm about to tell you in a more structured way, which is going to be really, really helpful. So step two is to ask yourself if you can simplify the question at all. So you write what's given and asked, and if it's a complicated question, you ask, can I do some algebra on this question to make it simpler? Now, talking through algebra steps is probably beyond the scope of a podcast, but definitely hit a web search and figure out exactly what it looks like when someone simplifies a data sufficiency question. Should be able to just put, what does it look like when someone simplifies a data sufficiency question into a web search and, and get some reasonable results. But if you can't, shoot us a DM and we'll, we'll find something good for you. It's generally easier to solve a simple question versus a complicated one, hence the desire to simplify questions. You won't be able to simplify all data sufficiency questions, probably, but probably 20 to 50% you can simplify, and it's really helpful. It's really helpful if you can simplify it, and it's not intuitive for most of us on standardized tests to think, oh, let me change this question to be simpler, but it's really, really helpful on data sufficiency, okay? So step one, write what's given an ask. Step two, can I simplify this question? Step three, evaluate statement one alone in a vacuum by itself. Do not consider statement two when you are evaluating statement one. You have to respect that answer choice A could be the answer to the question. It, recall that answer choice A says statement one alone is sufficient and statement two is not. So you got to put yourself in a vacuum and ask yourself, is this enough data by itself to answer the question? You don't want statement two in there clouding your judgment or making you think that you have more data than you actually have. Now, you might have to do some math on statement one, or it might be simple, or you might have to test some numbers. All of those are viable strategies. But eventually, you will figure out or have some idea, hopefully, whether statement one is sufficient or not, and you'll use that to eliminate some answer choices. Okay, if statement one's not sufficient, 
you can actually eliminate two answer choices. You can eliminate option A and option D as in delta because A says one alone by itself is sufficient, which if we've established that it's not, is not true. And then option D delta says statement one by itself and statement two by itself is sufficient. And we just established statement one is not sufficient. So we eliminate two. If statement one, so we eliminate A and D, those two answers. If statement one is sufficient, then we can eliminate B, C, and E because the only two options that I could pick are A and D, okay? Again, you might have to come back to this a couple times, write some of this stuff out, or maybe get some YouTube or blog article going to, to visualize this, but I'm giving you the, the foundation of it, and I promise this will help a ton. Okay, so step one, write what's given an ask. Step two, can I simplify the question? Step three, evaluate statement one alone by itself in a vacuum. Now, step four, you got to do something kind of weird, which is delete statement one from your consciousness. You have to forget that statement one exists and evaluate statement two in a vacuum by itself. That might be the hardest part of data sufficiency for most people. And many of you might have already been struggling with this if you've been studying for a while. You have this statement one in the back of your mind when you're evaluating statement two, and it's, again, clouding your judgment. It's making you think you have more information than you actually do. So don't do that. Intentionally either scratch statement one off on your scrap paper to help you mentally like delete that from your consciousness or find a way for yourself to evaluate two by itself alone in a vacuum. And then from there, the process is, is very similar. It's just, is this data enough by itself to answer the question overall? And you might have to do some math or it might be immediately obvious or you might have to test some numbers, okay? Now, if statement one is not sufficient, but statement two by itself is, you're picking option B as in beta and you're done with the question. But if statement two is not sufficient, now you're allowed to combine them because you've already determined that one by itself is not enough and two by itself is not enough. But you have to do that first because option C says statement one and two are not enough by themselves, but together they are. That, that first part of answer choice C is super, super important. A lot of people mess that up and they just go straight to combining the statements. That, that's probably going to go really badly, all right? So if you combine statement one and two, like I already talked about, and neither one independently is sufficient, but together they are, you pick C. If you combine one and two, and there's still not enough data to answer the question, you pick E as an echo. Okay, and we already talked about option D. That's it. That's your full data sufficiency process. It's not designed to be super complicated. It's designed to be simple so that you can use it 100% of the time, you can implement it, and you can get results. A lot of times, the simplest strategy is the best strategy. Not in 100% of cases, but in this case, for sure, yes. So let me rehash the full process. Write what's given and asked. Ask if I can simplify the question. If I can't, I just move on. If I can, I do some algebra to simplify it. Usually some algebra. Every once in a while, you can like logically rephrase the question. That's, that's unusual, but it does happen. But if simplify the question if you can. Evaluate one by itself in a vacuum. Forget one and evaluate two by itself in a vacuum. And then if one and two are not enough by themselves, you combine them. That's it. That's your six-step process to data sufficiency questions, all right? Now, if you have questions about this stuff, feel free to reach out to us, like I always say. Let me give you one more tip for data sufficiency questions. It's just unbelievably simple, but a huge, 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 game-changingly powerful thing if you implement it. You should always write out all of your work on data sufficiency questions. If it's happening in your head on a data sufficiency question, it should be happening on the page, on your Scratchwork page. Now, this is very controversial. Many, many professionals, many other students are going to tell you, oh, you don't need to do that. Don't do that. And my opinion, my opinion and the experience I have is 
That's like people telling you you don't need to obey the law. That's extremely risky. Okay, I'm not here to discuss the morality of obeying the law or not obeying the law. But if you're going to choose to not obey the law, you are incurring an unbelievable amount of risk. And let's be honest, for for virtually all of us, 99.9999% of the time, choosing to disobey the law is way more risky than than just doing the thing, okay? Um, hopefully you live in a part of the world where the laws are decided by citizens and the laws are fair. Again, that's like a huge moral thing that we're, I'm going to just not go down, but that is, that is the same amount of risk that you're incurring by not writing out all your work on data sufficiency questions. Data sufficiency questions, remember the whole point of a data sufficiency question is to try to trick you, to try to make it seem like something that is sufficient isn't, or something that isn't sufficient is, and writing out your scratch work does two things. Number one, it helps you track where you are logically in the problem. Again, data sufficiency questions are more logic problems than they are math problems. And this is now more true than ever on the new exam because there's probably going to be two, maybe three pure logic data sufficiency questions. So this writing down thing is going to be really valuable. And then the second thing that it helps you do is free up more brain power to process and problem solve. Because if you're trying to hold a lot of data points in your brain, that's soaking up bandwidth, like having a lot of tabs open that's slowing your internet access down, something like that, okay? Now, I recognize that's a super high bar with scratch work. Most people don't even get close to that, and that's why most people miss tons of data sufficiency questions that they could and should have gotten right, which means their score doesn't represent their ability levels. And if there's anything that... I have as a job here and my role in your success is to at least help you get credit for the actual knowledge that you have when you go in there on test day, okay? So you can save yourself a ton of pain and agony by just building good habits from the beginning with this. If you're just starting your out, let yourself be super slow on data sufficiency questions and don't feel the pressure to finish them in two minutes or even five minutes. Just focus on great scrap paper techniques and stepping through the process that I just gave you. That's going to solve 95% of the issues you're having on data sufficiency. And the other 5% is probably just content or doing enough practice questions to build speed. Um, if you've been struggling with data sufficiency and you feel like it might be because your process or your scratch work is not very good, then take the time pressure out of the situation. Practice as many data sufficiency as you need to untimed to build up your scrap paper technique and thoroughness and build up your systematic approach to DS. And then at that point, you should be good to go. With enough time and repetition, I want you to know that you can get fast and great at data sufficiency questions. Again, the risk you take if you don't develop these great habits from the beginning is you get fast and bad at data sufficiency questions, which is better than slow and bad, but not by much. Being fast and bad at data sufficiency questions is not going to be great by much if you want to go to a top MBA program. If you're not going to a super competitive program and you're looking to just quote unquote like pass the test rather than get an elite score then you can get by cutting many, many, many quarters. But I'm assuming many of you are here explicitly because you want an edge and you want to do great and you want to do your absolute best on test day or maybe even better than that. And that's why we're here for you. So as always, my greatest hope is that this material will make your studies as easy and as painless as possible. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, as always, head to our website, thegmatstrategy.com, and check out our free video presentation on how to achieve your dream GMAT score in half the normal time. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe and stay positive 
and stay consistent with your studies. Reach out to us if there's anything we can do to support. I'll talk to you all soon.